do when I'm working, I had my headphones in and I was listening to a Spotify worship playlist. And sometimes I know the songs that are playing, other times I don't, but I'm not listening to actually engage. It's more just to have background noise and so I can effectively work. And as I'm working, uh, uh, this new song pops up that I'd never heard before and I had to stop what I was doing because this song convicted me so much. To the point where I put down the message that I was working on, I opened up Google and I typed in this song and the lyrics popped up. And as I read the lyrics, again, I was so moved by it and challenged by this song. The song is called, What If Love by the Timber of Cedar. And, and here are the lyrics here. It says this, What if love is the measure of a life we live? What if love is the measure of a life we live. You know, often when we measure our lives, we're thinking about how we look, or what we do, or what we have, or what's in our bank account, and we think that is the measure of my life. That's what I'm defined by. That's what I get my worth. But this song challenges us to think differently. What if it's not what we do, or what we look like, or what we have, but it's our love, our relationships, what if that's what counts in our lives? Because at the end of our lives, think about it. When people are at your funeral, they're not going to be talking about you as a coworker or you as what you look like or what you had. They're going to be thinking about the relationship they had with you and the love that you had for them. If that's the case, how are we doing? How are we doing with our relationships? How are we doing with our love for one another? If you were to ask your spouse or your coworkers or your friends or your kids or grandkids or other people in your life, what would they say about your love? Because outside of our relationship with Jesus, the most important part of our lives, what will go beyond us even after we are gone, is our relationships, our love for one another. That's why as we are looking at our 2023 vision at the chapel, as we grow deeper together over these next three years, we want to build a culture of family to make sure everyone belongs. We want to make sure we're looking more like Jesus every single day. We want to equip the next generation so we make sure our kids and our grandkids are following Christ. And one of the things we have to do is get our relationships right that no matter what relationship you are in, either with a stranger or your spouse, that we get it right. And so what we want to do today is talk about how to cultivate healthy relationships. How can we make sure that we're working at a relationship so they're thriving, so they're healthy, so that our love, which is the most important thing about us, is right between that other person. In order to do that, we need to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in the first three verses there. If you're familiar with Scripture and you're in the New Testament, you read letters from Paul to these churches he's either established or he's in a relationship with. And oftentimes he's talking about theology and the right beliefs to have and talks about Jesus and God and references the Old Testament. It's full of those things. But oftentimes he's talking about our relationships with others. And in Ephesians 4, as he's writing to this church in Ephesus, he turns to their relationships and he challenges them deeply. Get ready to be challenged this morning by this text. 
Here's what it says. It says, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now we're going to dissect this passage verse by verse. In the first verse, there's two things we need to pay attention to right away. It's the words, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. In the original language of the New Testament, that's Greek. If you look at the Greek rendering of that phrase, urge you, it's actually the phrase, I beg you. Which is interesting because here's Paul, he's writing to the Ephesians and he's saying, look, I beg you to pay attention to what I'm saying. I beg you to get this right. What does he want them to get right? Their relationships with each other. Do you know why he begs us? Because he knows what's in us. Think about it. We have the option of taking two paths in our relationships. Only two paths. Selflessness or selfishness. There's no other paths that we can take. And Paul, he's warning us, he's begging us to take the selfless path because he knows what happens when we're on the selfish path. When we're living selfish, all we do is think about ourselves. We are consumed with ourselves. And because we're consumed with ourselves, when we're in relationship with other people, we use them to get what we want. When we're selfish, love is unconditional, and forgiveness, well, that goes out the window. When we're in relationships that's marked by selfishness, we will live opposite of what the Apostle James challenged us to do. We will be quick to speak, slower to listen, and even quicker to get angry. If those things mark your life with your spouse or your family or your friends, then you are on the selfish path. And Paul is begging you to get off because he knows what's at stake. You live selfishly in your life. Pretty soon you're going to realize how lonely you are because people want to get off that train. Nobody wants to be in relationship with a selfish person. And that's why Paul is begging us not just to live selfishly, but then he calls us to live according to what our calling is. That's why he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That phrase, to walk, literally means a lifestyle of. That we don't just be nice to people and selfless when we're at church. That it has to be everywhere. In our homes, at our workplaces, at the grocery store. When we're in our cars and someone cuts us off, y'all know what happens when that happens, right? Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter where you're at. You are called to live a lifestyle of love. It's a part of your calling. What are you called to do? You're called to follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, your actions must follow. There are some of us who read the Bible and we pray and we come to church, but we're jerks. That can't happen. Not when you follow Jesus. Over time, 
We have to start making sure our lives, particularly our relationships, reflect Christ's likeness. That we live according to the calling that we're called to live. That's why Paul begs us, like, look, I know how hard this is, but I'm begging you to get this right. Because at the end of your life, you will regret it if you don't. And that's why I want to look at what Paul is saying. How do we do this? What does it look like in our daily lives? Before I get to that point, I'm going to take a drink of water. (laughs) And I want to remind you of something that oftentimes we know in our minds, but when it comes to living it out, it's really tough. I listed some goals in my life this next year, and maybe someday I'll tell you all of them so you can keep me accountable. But here's one of them. And it's something that you and I know of, and we have to remind ourselves, especially in relationships with others, it's this. I cannot control what other people do or how they treat me. The only thing I can control is my behavior and how I treat others. This is a goal of mine to live out my relationships because so often I try to control other people. I want them to act according to what I want it to look like. And of course we want that. The problem is some of us spend so much time controlling the other person that we haven't recognized we're the ones that actually out of control. The only way we can get this right is to stop focusing on what that other person does and start focusing on what we do. Now a natural rebuttal to that is I understand that Eric but you don't understand how they treat me. What I have to go through on a daily basis I think if Tim Keller was here, he would say this. Because the gospel points us to the one who died for his enemies, it creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus was killed, murdered. And yet here his murderers are there, right in front of him. And what does he ask the Father to do to these people? Forgive them. He died for his enemies. Enemies back then, enemies today, us who reject Jesus, he died for us. So when you say you don't understand how people treat me, what I'll say back to you as Christ follower, you're called to pattern your life after Christ. No matter how people treat you, you must control you and live according to what God's calling you to do. And what he says to do is difficult. So buckle up. Here's what he says. We live according to our calling and we live it out in this way. This is how we'll know we're doing it right. We'll live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ouch. That that first part, humility, is an interesting word. C.S. Lewis writes a lot about humility and he says something kind of humorous about it. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. Well, the first step is to realize that one is proud. If you think you're not prideful or conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Isn't it so true? If I told you like five things that mark pride, you'd be like, my spouse, yep, my friends, yep. But how often is it that we deny it in our own life? problem is all of us are prideful. All of us have an ego. It's a disease in all of us, and it comes out in so many different ways. The problem, too, is we live in a Western culture that likes to inflate our ego. 
That's why when you go to buy a self-help book, oftentimes the title is Live Your Best Life. It's all about you. Love yourself. And don't, ever, don't let me get started in how social media <laughs> inflates our egos and pushes us to the top. You want to know how you see it in relationships? You walk around with a swagger and a confidence that you're right and everyone else is wrong. Or you walk around thinking you are the best and you are the standard and everyone else can't measure up. If people can't measure up to your standard, you are prideful. Because what you're saying is you're the best and everyone else, well, they pale in comparison to you. You know you're prideful in relationships when you don't get your way and you pout about it. You know you're prideful in relationships when you can tell the other person you're wrong, but when you are the one that's wrong, you can't handle it. That's pride. That's ego. And we see it in our lives. We see it poured out in relationships. It's why C.S. Lewis says, look, if you want to be humble, the first, the first action in humility is to recognize I'm not and that I'm prideful. And then we can become humble. To become humble, John Stott says the word that Paul is referencing here is this word that means lowliness of mind. It's the humble recognition of the worth and value of other people. The humble mind which was in Christ led him to empty himself and become a servant. Humility is equal to servanthood. It is always not when you feel like it, not when it's beneficial to you, not when you want something. Always, always, always marked by serving others, even if your needs are not served first. So let me ask you, if your spouse was here, or your best friend was here, or your children were here, or your boss was here, or the kids in school were here, if I were to ask them about you, do you like to serve or be served more? What would they say? What would they say? We have to be humble. We have to get over ourselves and say, you know what? Life is not about me. It's about other people. That's why Paul begs us to live this way, to live at our calling. Our calling is to treat others the way Christ treats us, and he humbled himself unto death, death on a cross. So we must as well. Paul goes on to say, you don't just live with humility, but I beg you to live with gentleness, with patience. When you're looking at the Greek text here, you notice that gentleness and patience, well, they go together. And the reason they go together, one of the commentaries that I read in, is because of this. It characterizes the person who does not need to assert or dominate. It's the patient believer who does not rush to get up or get even. Of all the things in my life that I struggle with, and there are a lot of them. And if you just heard amen, that was my wife sitting in the front row. <laughs> she did not say amen. I just know what she's thinking. I think this is the hardest thing that I struggle with. is gentleness and patience. You know what really stinks? And maybe you agree with me. I can be gentle and patient with coworkers, with friends, with strangers sometimes but I'm oftentimes least gentle and patient with the ones who deserve it the most. 
which are the five people in my home, my kids and my wife. So often, we're so self-consumed that we look at other people's as irritants instead of people that we get to treat with gentleness and patience. You see, to be gentle is not to be weak. Actually, when you're gentle, you're showing your strength because truly it's strength under control. And to be patient is to be godlike in your patience towards people that don't always deserve it. And the reason we're patient with those who don't always deserve it is because God is so patient with us. I mean, think about your life for a moment. You and I have something in common. We are all a mess. We don't always project it that way, but dissect our thoughts, dissect our desires, dissect whatever it is inside of us. We are a walking disaster. And yet God does not give up on us. God does not just yell at us. God does not say, you're dealing with this thing again. No, what does he do? He's gentle and patient with us, realizing how much we need it to thrive in our lives. Friends, do the people in your life experience your gentleness and patience, or do they walk on eggshells around you? That is not a fun place to live when they have to walk around and shield themselves from your outbursts. And I can only say that because I can see it in my kids when they're the recipient of mine. That's why Paul begs us, live this way. It's so easy to blow up. It's so easy to tell everybody their issues. It's a lot harder to be patient and gentle with them. And yet that is what you and I are called to live, Christ followers. We are to live opposite of the world. We reflect Christ in all that we do. And then he goes on. Jeez, oh, pizza ball. But he keeps going. Bearing with one another in love. The Apostle Peter fleshes this out a little bit for us in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, when he says, most importantly, show deep love for each other. How do you do that? Well, love covers a multitude of sins. When we bear with one another, that word bear means to grit it out. To show grittiness. To cover, to cover people's sins and people's shortcomings. What that means is you love more than you point out people's faults. That when you see something in them and all you want to do is remind them of how crappy they are as a person, you show love. You take it on yourself like Christ took it upon himself when he loved us. Let me ask you, do I love more or blame more? Do the people in your life feel like you blame them for everything that goes wrong? Or would they say, no, actually he loves or she loves more than he blames? Do I love more than I argue? Many of us like to argue because we want to be right. True humility, true Christ-likeness is love in action. It's not to fight. Sometimes it's the flight of that, to run away from an argument and take that on yourself. Bear it, cover it up. And then what we said before, do I love more or do I point out weaknesses more? 
Do the people in your life know how you think them think of their weaknesses more than they know about how much you love them? Like if they had to write out the things that you have said over this last week, would they write out more weaknesses, more faults, or would they write out how many times you showed them and told them your love? There's a difference. That's why Paul begs us. He's like, look, you can live selfishly. That's what everyone else does. Jesus did it, and so therefore you can't. You shouldn't. And you will be so happy, not just now, but at the end of your life, when you are known for living a life of love. And then Paul goes on, <laughs> eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the, blood, uh, in the bond of peace. In our individual relationships, we should be unified and at peace with one another. And yet for the next few moments, I don't want to talk about our individual relationships per se. I want to talk about the unity and peace that should be present in our churches. Do the people on social media and in your life recognize you by your Christ-likeness or your stance on masks? Do the people in your life recognize your love and your humility and your gentleness and your patience more than they recognize your political affiliation? And you can sit there and say, well, now, Eric, are you saying that we can't have a political side or a political opinion? Can we not have an opinion on masks? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, why is it that we Christ followers are known for what we're against than what we're for? Why is it that I am seeing people in our church leave the church or break up with each other in relationships over a mask or over a political party? How can that happen? We are here for Christ. We interpret politics through Christ, which means have your opinion, but you can't allow it to, to fracture relationships. How dare we give up on people? How dare we give up on a church or whatever it is because of a political belief? What's most important is our love for one another. That's why Carrie Newhoff says it's the gospel that unites us. And what Prejudice and politics often divide us. Our world is divided more than ever, but guess what? So is our church. And if Paul were here today, he's like, look, I beg you, knock it off. You are hurting each other. You are a family, and all you do is fight. And you're hurting Christ's testimony in the world for fighting for something. That sure, it does matter. Don't hear me on that. It matters. But what matters more is that people see Jesus in you. That at the end of the day, unity is not having a disagreement. Unity is disagreeing in love. So when we walk away from each other, we remember it's Jesus. And then everything else. It is time, church, that we knock it off. Have your opinion on masks. I don't care. Have your political views. I don't care. What we do care about is what Paul begs us. Please, please have unity and peace so that our divided world can have hope that it's different inside the church, no matter what our beliefs are. That's why Paul begs us to live differently, 
live like Christ, no matter what it is. And that's why we want to help you over these next three years to have healthy relationships because there's so much at stake. Our churches are at stake. Our marriages are at stake. Our relationship with our kids and our grandkids are at stake. So much is at stake. So we want to help with that. That's why by 2023, we want to provide numerous opportunities for people to cultivate thriving relationships. Whether that's new connection groups that we want to continue to establish as COVID works its way out. We want to offer parenting classes, new parenting classes than we've ever before so we can have good relationships with our kids and grandkids. We want to launch new men's and women's ministry opportunities. There's a brand new women's ministry opportunity. It's coming in March that I can't wait to tell you about. We want to continue to offer more marriage events and conferences. We'll be talking about that next weekend. We want to offer mentorship relationships so people who are ahead of us can point us to truth and help us out on this journey. And then in the fall, we want to offer an emotionally healthy spirituality course. It focuses on what's underneath the big iceberg of our lives that we can't see. we got to get healthy from the inside out. We want to help cultivate healthy relationships because you know what's at stake? Our love, what we're known for. It's the reason why Timber of Cedar says, what if love is the measure of a life we live? Your life is not measured by what you look like, what you do, how much you have. Those are fleeting. What you're known for is your love and your relationships with others. Let's get it right. Let's pray together. Father, I can't imagine how grieved you must be when you look at some of our relationships. I must grieve your heart when I am so impatient with my kids or my wife. It must grieve your heart when you see people acting out in pride and arrogance. Because Jesus, you're so different. You are humble. You are gentle. You are patient. You cover us by your love. You maintain unity and peace. Lord, all we have to do is follow you and that will come as well. Help us to cultivate healthy relationships for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.